Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Learner's Corner podcast. And this is the podcast for lifelong learners, where we learn from anyone and from anything. And we want to create a safe place to have uh, difficult conversations. And today, I'm honored to be joined by one of my favorite people in the world, Brenda Young, my aunt, who is my Aunt Brenda. And today, you know, we're looking back and actually for the next couple of episodes because this is going to be a, a three-part uh i guess episode conversation whatever you want to call it but however many months ago i asked her to kind of reflect back on some of her greatest life lessons and some of the things that she's learned throughout life and so that's what these next uh including this episode and these uh the next two after this one are going to be and so I thought that would be a very fun way to close out uh, 2023 as well as we are wrapping up and getting closer to the end of the of 2023, which is absolutely wild. And so that's what this episode or these next couple of episodes are going to be is me talking with my aunt Brenda about some of the, the things that she has learned over her life. Now, if you consider yourself a lifelong learner, you know, please subscribe to the podcast. Please subscribe to my Substack, to where I'm just learning from many different things. And yeah, so if you're interested in learning more, please subscribe to the Substack and just all of that stuff as well. So let me tell you a little bit about my aunt Brenda, and then we are going to jump into the conversation. So Brenda Young is the former lead pastor at Cornerstone Church, and she served there in one capacity or another since 1978, but was the lead pastor from 1996 through 2020. She is also the founder and director of Clear Blue Water Project and has a graduate uh, degree from Ohio Christian University in Asbury Theological Seminary with an honorary doctor of divinity divinity degree from the center for contemporary christianity in bangalore bangalore india and she is a frequent speaker as well as well as an author she is authored only god co-authored that with dwight mason which is my dad and grace and truth finding balance in the christian life beauty on the mountains and poppy's work glove and without any further wait here is our conversation. Well, Aunt Brenda, it is so good to have you back on the Learner's Corner podcast. Oh, man, I've been excited. I, I just couldn't wait. Yeah. And, you know, we we talked about this idea a few months ago. And one of the things that I was really interested in talking with you about is some of the, just the lessons that you've learned throughout life. And so I kind of asked you to write out some of, um, just some of the bigger themes, some of the bigger, bigger lessons that really stood out to you in your life. And so we have, I don't know how many, probably 10, and this is either going to be, you know, uh, a part one conversation. It's either going to be one conversation or it's going to be a part two conversation. <laughs> okay. Too. okay. Well, I'm just looking forward to it every minute of it. Yeah. And so uh, how about you go ahead and just uh, read us what the first lesson is? Okay. I, and I wouldn't say these are in any particular order. They're just 
they're just things that I believe God has shown me through life. And the first one that I have is change and evolve. Keep becoming a new and better version of yourself all throughout your life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one, one of the things that I'm interested in talking with you about is talk to me how that has continued to be a thing for you, especially like you've gone through so many different seasons right. of your life. Talk to me about how, yeah, just what, what you've done to continue to pursue that. Okay. I, I probably need to start by making a little caveat, best version of you. I'm not preaching at anybody. I'm telling you about me. <laughs> I'm not saying this is any, anyone else. You know, I, I have a, a sign I put out every autumn in my bathroom and it says fall is proof that change can be beautiful. And I think that is a perspective. If you're not going to get stale in life, uh, you're going to have to quit resisting change and, you know, believe that it can be uh, beautiful for you. Uh, Getting stuck in the good old days, whether it's as a nation, as a church, as a family, as a person, I think we thank God for the good old days. But if we stay there, oh my goodness, it's not good for anybody. You know, it it just becomes uh, terrible. God says all through his word that he's doing something new. Even if you're even if you're not a believer, how would the world be? How would you like it if somebody didn't do something new? And so that's that's kind of where it goes for me. Um, and, and for me, this is so basic, Caleb. Uh, it probably sounds trivial, but I don't believe it is. I think it's really significant. I get up every day and create order. I believe that's what God did, you know, when he created the world. And I believe it's what, I believe it's what happy people do every day. They get up and bring order into their world. And it's because world, uh, the world changes and your own world changes. As you mentioned, the seasons of life changes. It means something a little bit different for me, but like to become the, a better version of myself, um, means that, you know, I, I get up and, and the first thing I do is, you know, take care of me. I, I take care of me. I, you know, talk to the Lord. I, um, okay, nobody lives with me but Barkley, my schnauzer. <laughs> no, and it's not very often, but, but there will be days that I don't see anybody all day. You know, it, it's, it's just me. And, um, but I believe I'm worth combing my hair for. <laughs> I believe I'm worth not staying in my PJs all day for. And so I get up. That's the, that's the uh, first thing I do. First thing I do is good morning, Lord. And then I take care of myself. Then I make my bed and I restore order in the house. And if it's a new season, um, I put out new decorations. You know, I, I know lots of people and I'm not criticizing anyone. It's their thing. It just doesn't fit me. Um, for me, um, I remember after Charlie died, I had several people ask me, are you going to put up a Christmas tree this year? I'm like, what in the world? I didn't put up that tree for Charlie. I put up that tree because it's Christmas and it's a great holiday. And I was like, my tree, come back and see what my house looks like. It's going to be like the Christmas factory exploded in my house. And I think when you let, when you let changes that come into your life take away the things that, that bring you joy, you're not moving with change and you can't be the best version of yourself. You become a, you know, a, a, just not a good, good version. And I guess, so for me, there's a couple of principles I stick with. One is to be authentically me. If I'm going to be the best version of me, it's being authentically me. And now you'll think this is funny, but I used to color my hair and I just decided I wasn't doing that anymore. I have no problem with anybody that does that. 
but I'm 70 years old. I have earned my gray hairs. It has helped me be the best version of me to, to just actually accept where I am. What would the best version of 70-year-old Brenda be for me? It's accepting who I am, accepting, accepting where I am with the limitations and the challenges come with it, um, and accepting the limitations and challenges without complaint and just figuring a new way to do things, you know, uh, doing that, making the best of where I am. Um, you know, uh, General Douglas MacArthur, I believe it was when his command of Korea was taken away from him uh, by the president uh, during the Korean War. I believe that's when he said, old soldiers never die, they just fade away. That statement makes me feel rebellious. Yeah. I don't want anything to me to, about me to fade away. I, I want to die sword in hand. I, I want to do that. And, and so um, every day I just decide I'm not fading. You know, I'm going to stay in it. And I do that. I would say probably one of the best things I do for myself, Caleb, is having young mentors in my life just like you. You are one of my premier. Um, and I tell people that when, when you know, people ask me who's an influencer in your life, your name always comes up. I, having young mentors helps me be the best version of me at 70. I don't want my glory days to have been when I was 40 or, you know, back then. I want it to be today. So that that's that's what it is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there, there's so much there that I want to follow up on and ask you about. Um, the first thing is, is you mentioned for, for the not fading away yeah. piece of it, you mentioned, you know, surrounding yourself with, with young mentors. Is there anything else, like, as it pertains to, like, the, the not wanting to fade away mm -hmm. that you do to help make that a reality? Yeah, I, I think... Um, you know, you know how it is for you right now. You know, you're, you're, but we seem to accept it younger, uh, easier. When, when you want anything in life, when you have a goal in life, if you really have a goal, if it's, if it really has captured your heart, if you're passionate about it, you're willing to be inconvenienced to make it happen. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, um, one of the, one of the biggest things is the willingness to be inconvenienced. Whenever life becomes about being easy, being comfortable, and about being for me, um, I'm not going to be the best version of myself, and I'm not going to grow. I'm not going to do that. And I have, and there's nothing wrong with this. Yeah. It's just not who I am. You know, John Maxwell, I heard him say years and years ago, don't retire, re-enlist. And I was young at the time. And he was giving that as a challenge to older people. It stayed in my mind the whole time. Uh, don't re don't retire, re-enlist. And, and so to be in the battle means to be inconvenienced. It means to do that. And so, you know, I do inconvenient things. I'm as busy now as I was. You know that's true. I'm as busy now. It's just in a different area. You know, as like... Um, General MacArthur, I was relieved of my command, willingly. I retired as lead pastor, but I certainly didn't retire from ministry. Um, it's what life is about. It's, it's that. And so, you know, yeah, I just, I, I decide if today, if there's a need I see, I'm going to try to meet it. And it just keeps me going. I, I, I just, again, I don't, there's no problem for me, for somebody else to spend their retirement days traveling and 
spending their money on their own vacations and doing their own things and that kind of stuff. That is absolutely fine, and I'm sure that God blesses them, and it's wonderful. It's just not for me. For me, uh, the joy of life comes from the inconvenience of it. (laughs) I'd I'd be curious to hear, whenever John Maxwell said that, like how long ago was that? Oh, my goodness. 25 years, probably. Okay, I, f- I figured it. I figured it was a little yeah. while ago. It's been a while ago. He was he he did it at a retreat for senior adults in Arizona, mm-hmm. and um, somebody didn't think he would have anything to say to to senior adults, and yeah. he he came up with that little phrase that yeah. I think is is ba- I think basically we see it through the the people who have contributed most in life. That's been their plan. Mm-hmm. So I would love to hear what do you think. Like what resonated so strongly with you about that? Because I think you would have been in your your mid forties then. Mm -hmm. You still have, like at that time, you still have twenty. You still have twenty twenty ish years (laughs) to go, and yet that still stuck with you. I'd just be curious to hear more about that. Well, (laughs) you know, um, I've always been a great admirer of my father, Mm -hmm. and I, you know, I saw my father and my mother. They were moving on like with barely a a, a slowdown of a step yeah. or anything at that point in time and I admired that and I would say that would be that would be one thing but I don't even know how this happened Caleb other than the work of God in my life and watching other people but it has it has always been for me for so long I can't remember when it wasn't that life here and in eternity is one continuous thread mm-hmm. and if it is, why would I stop? Yeah. You know, if I, I just have always kind of felt that way. Yeah. And I think that's probably why it stuck with me. It was like a, it, it was like a phrase that, that was a bucket list goal for me to yeah. do that, to, yeah. to never become irrelevant, yeah. to always be in the battle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, you know, you mentioned the thing about inconvenience and that being like a, I guess, for lack of a better term, like a cost of always choosing to be in the battle. Talk to me about like some of, and, and, and you've talked about some of them, but I would just be really curious to hear like, what are some of the other things that because you've chosen to be in the battle that you've had to like shift on, if that makes sense. Okay. Um, well, um, it certainly impacts your finances. It certainly impacts what you're going to do with your finances because I have, you know, I have certain things that I want to do to serve my family. Mm-hmm. And so that gets priority in my budget after the work of the Lord. Mm-hmm. And then I want to serve I want to serve people. So finances is it. You know, this is a funny thing. This just happened this week. Funny that you would ask this. I have a friend who is a kind and and generous woman, and she came to my house um, the other day and sometime uh, within the last week, and she came to my house and she had an envelope and she laid it in front of me and she said, um, I, she said, I feel, um, I felt like God wanted me to do this for you. And so I know that you're not going to want to accept this, but I want you to accept it. And she laid uh, an envelope down. I opened it up. There was $100 in it. And 
I was blown away. Of course, I didn't want to take it, but I said, if you said the Lord said this, then yes, I'll take it. And I immediately knew in my mind what I was going to do with that. Mm-hmm. Just kind of a little fun thing. Yeah. It wasn't very long until a young man showed up at my door and he was really broken and he was really struggling and finances were a part of it. Well, I realized just immediately that little fun thing that I needed, uh, I didn't need. It was just a good thing. And here I had laying on my table, I had $100 to give him. And um, so I think it affects your finances. It certainly inf- uh, affects your time. You know, I you can whether it's a TV show you want to watch or something like that, it doesn't mean you don't have time for yourself. It doesn't do that, but it means that in the moment you are willing to surrender. I I heard a definition of sin that I thought was so good. The definition was satisfying my desires at your expense. That's powerful. That is really powerful. And it doesn't mean that the activity I'm doing is sinful. It doesn't mean I shouldn't do it. But maybe I should be willing to sacrifice the exact schedule I wanted it to be on. I just think it, I think it's everything. I think you just, for me, for me, it's to have a loose hold on everything. A loose hold on my schedule, a loose hold on my money, a, a loose hold on my possessions. It's like, you know, my car. If someone needs to borrow my car, sure, have at it. You yeah. know, if you bang it up. The Lord will fix it. Yeah. You know, it's it's just it's a loose hold, yeah. a loose hold. Yeah. I. I don't know. This this is probably such a softball question, but I think like how did you get there? Like how did you get to that point to where, mm-hmm. like, and again, I know that this yeah. is this is yeah. this is such a big question. And I'll let you take it whatever direction that you want, but um. Actually, you know what? Uh, the more that I think about, it, I I, I want to hold on that because I think it ties back to another lesson and I'd rather us talk about that lesson right now into the finance thing of that, um, of refusing, refusing to be obsessed with, I think you say refuse to be obsessed with your bank account, your mirror or your age. They will keep you from making your best decisions, which is tied into what we, what we want to talk about. And so, you know, feel free to elaborate on the, I know you touched on the finance stuff, so feel free to elaborate any more that you want to, but then, you know, touch on the, the, the age and the, the mere piece of that too. I think that those are things that the world applauds us for. You know, we obsess on the things like if you're, if you look a certain way, the whole world is trying to be younger than they are. You know, except and until until you hit somewhere between 21 and 25, mm-hmm. everyone's obsessed with looking younger. You know, uh, when you get there, when you're young, you want to be old enough to get to do th- certain things. But then after that, you're, you know, you're, you're trying to be younger. And we can absolutely obsess with it. And it ties into our appearance, the way we act, the things that we do, um, all of that. And. And so we make things, um, I remember dad telling me years and years ago, never make a financial decision. It's like, what in the world does that mean? <laughs> and what he meant was, we talked about it many times over the years, what he meant was don't have a, don't make a decision that is sheerly based around money because, you know, that will, that will be it. And I think that's, you know, that's being obsessed with it. And when you do, when you think about that, they will all keep you from, um, 
making your best decision because you're so fixated on one thing, whether it's comfort, whether it's how you look, whether it's any of that stuff. And I would say um, the thing that forced me to, to, um, to recognize that this is true was my calling to ministry as a woman. I never knew a woman pastor before I knew myself as a pastor, never did. And I knew a lady that had been an evangelist and she got you know, some open doors for that because she wasn't really pastoring. She would fly in and speak or whatever. And um, she, would, she would do that. But I didn't know any woman pastors and uh, many of the people that I met uh, were uncertain that there should be. That's as kindly as I know how to say it. <laughs> and and um, that was, it was easy for me to fixate on being a woman, not on my calling. And uh, in the beginning, it was hard. Uh, you know, my, my own mother was raised um, in an environment where uh, women were not in ministry, specifically as pastors. They were always in support roles. They were not in leadership roles. And... Um, Mom never had comfort with my calling. She had comfort with many things that I did. But as you know, your dad, she was like a thousand percent certain that God had called him to do what he was doing. And my father, you know, the men, she was very certain of that. I never, I never was able to uh, feel her uh, blessing in that. And when someone close to you... Um, doesn't feel and and no mistake she did not harp on this she didn't do negative things she just didn't do the positive things that you know made me know so so there was that and then and then so much opposition I got so much opposition and that was that was pivotal for me it was like you know what if I'm not going to focus on being a woman I I will in fact I have never gone to a woman's ministry conference I don't do it I have never done that. Um, you know, they have, and I, they have women's uh, ministry conferences and, and very high profile ones and all of that. And I have never gone to that because of this very reason. I cannot focus on being a woman. I am called, ugh, I am called by God to do what I do. Yeah. And if I focus on being a woman, I'm going to water down who God wants me to be. And that's what it is with any obsession you have, whether it's your finances, whether it's your, your intellectual ability, whether it's your education, whether it's your appearance, your age, whatever it is. When you focus on that instead of your identity and who God has called you to be, you will water down your entire life. So that's it. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's so powerful. Um, so I... I Man, there's. We're, I can already tell that we're gonna have to have a part two. Um, <laughs> uh, that would be fun. For no, me. which is great. Um, so I, I want to go back to that, and you mentioned now not being at the place to where not fixate. You're not able to fix it. as as much as you're comfortable or willing to share. I know that that wasn't always the case. Right. And so take me back to like, what did that fixation look like when when you were you know, again, maybe in your 20s or just just your earlier days of ministry when that was more of a struggle. It was such a huge, it was such a huge struggle. And I'm, I'm so grateful for two wonderful men in my life who made this 
easier than it could have been. First of all, was my father who was very shaping. I remember he said over and over again, and we repeated it to our children. I remember Charlie would take Rachel's arms and throw them high in the air when she was a real little girl, and he would say, what can Rachel do? Anything with Jesus, you know? And that was, Dad didn't do it in the same way, but but um, I picked that up from him, that anything that God called me to do, I could do. So that was great. And then Charlie was supportive. He was a hundred percent. He's opened so many doors for me. He was just supportive. He believed I could do and be anything. In fact, um, it's, I'm sure too long of a story for today, Yeah. but the day I was going to be ordained, he asked well, me. Oh, I think you need to share. I, I, I think you need to share okay. all of that okay. story. We got the time and it's such, I mean, yeah. Okay. Well, the day that I was going to be ordained, um, I had in our, in our denominational system, we had, they go through the process of asking you questions. And, um, so there were four of us being ordained th that weekend. And so the day before my ordination, I had gone through that questioning process in front of the body of, you know, the, the, uh, officials and all the people that were there to witness it. And so they ask all the questions and then they ask this, this question, which is rhetorical most of the time. Um, they ask, does anyone have reason for an objection to any of these candidates? And they called us out one by name, uh, one by one by name. And two men stood and objected to my ordination. It felt humiliating. You know, it, it felt that way. If you were churched, you knew this was about me being a woman. If you weren't churched, what did that look like? It was very humiliating. And um, so then came Sunday and it was time for my ordination. And so we had had a, a wonderful day. Nothing ugly happened during the vacation, uh, during the ordination. I happened to be pregnant at the time. And um, Charlie asked me after we had had a family celebration with cake and all that kind of stuff, he said, hey, babe, how about we go for a walk? And I said, okay. And I thought he was doing his typical thoughtful thing. Um, he, he knew that my ankles were swelling because it was close to time for the birth of the baby. And um, I thought that's what it was about. So we walked to the top of this hill and there was a swing set up there. And he said, why don't we sit for a few minutes? And I said, Okay, so we sat and rested, and he said to me, you know, I've been thinking about something, Brenda. He said, have you ever thought it's very funny that um, Dwight, who is your dad, uh, uh, that Dwight, um, uh, he, he was an All-American in Christian colleges. He set records in basketball. He was great in basketball, did things I never did. But has it ever occurred to you how funny it is that he can never beat me in a game of one-on-one -on -one or horse. And I said, huh, no, I never even realized that. And he said, yeah, he's never, he's never beaten me. He said, why do you think that is? And I said, I have no clue, but clearly you've thought about it. Why don't you tell me? And he said, it is because I taught him. And he has so much respect for me and so much love for me that he cuts his own legs off when he plays for me. He thinks he's trying to win, but he's not because he's holding back in case in any way it would make me look bad that he beat me. And at this point in time, I got what he was doing. He said, do you know why I'm telling you this story? And I was ready. I was holding back my emotion. I said, I'm pretty sure I do, but I need you to tell me. And he said, 
I'm telling you this because you were ordained today, because you have an equal calling of God on your life to me, to your father, to everyone else you'll ever meet. Your calling is equal to them. And he said, I'm so afraid that you will hold yourself back, that you will be like Dwight in basketball, that you will, you will think you are honoring me and loving me by not being your best. And he said, that's going to never be true. He said, there, there are going to be people, probably many people, who like your preaching more than mine, who like your style of pastoring more than mine, who want you to do their weddings and their funerals instead of me. And he said, whenever that happens, I will be your number one fan. I will be applauding you. Don't ever hold yourself back from me. Nothing will hurt you. Nothing will hurt me. Nothing will hurt our marriage more than that. So that was a massive push forward. It was, you know, it was a massive uh, push forward. So that that was that was incredible. But the pressures of those days, the early days, were so hard because, you know, uh, it's become much more so now today, Caleb, than it was when I was young in in ministry and a young mother. Um, it was difficult to be a woman in ministry then, but there's a new element to it today. Honestly, conservative Christianity is the worst example and the best example at the same time. They're best in that they do it best, but it's the worst that it should never be them. Conservative Christianity is the biggest cancel culture you ever saw. If they've got five points for belief, if you don't hit every one of the five, you're out. You know, you're done. You're done. And so I see a terrible swing around to to this canceling and how it's it may impact uh, people. You're going to have to have lots of courage. But um, when I was first married, mm -hmm. the thing that was my my biggest obstacle to fixating on being a woman was the fact that anything that I did brought me into question with some people that I was not respecting my husband. And you know we had the like. The, the thoughtful, they think it's progressive, complementarian view that a woman compliments her husband and that's progressive and that's our role and that's what we're supposed to be. Mm -hmm. No, we're supposed to be partners. Yeah. We're supposed to be pointers, partners, joint heirs. We're supposed to, that's what we're supposed to be. But it was very difficult. And, and um, Charlie and I had to work at that together for me not to hold myself back because people, uh, if I expressed my opinion and it was not, 100% Charlie's opinion, I had disrespected him. Well, no, I hadn't, but it was that way. And then, oh my goodness, you start having kids and you're in ministry, people are sure you're, in fact, Charlie and I got a letter in the mail from a man telling us that we were sending our children to hell. We were sending our children to hell by the way we raised them because they were seeing examples that they should not see. Um, it, it, that those kinds of pressures are difficult, but again, it's knowing your identity, it's knowing it's knowing your calling, whatever it is that God has put you on this place to to do, on this planet to do, keeping your focus on that and not being obsessed with anything else, because there there will always be there will always be people trying to pull you off track, and the worst part is Caleb most of them will convince themselves they're doing the work of the Lord to do that. Yeah, you know, I, I love that story so much. It's one of my favorite stories, it's and, it's, and, it's, and it's one of those things that um, 
I ever since the first time that you told me that, that has just been such an inspiration to me. And um, I know one one of the great things about Uncle Charlie is he wouldn't just say those things. He would he lived it out then. And I would just love to hear like what's what's an example that comes to your mind of him living that out of not just saying, you know, Brenda, I, I want you to live out your calling even, even, and this may not be the right way to say it, even at the expense of me. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, years ago, years ago, Charlie took over the job of doing the dishes. He just took it over. You know, uh, he, another thing that he did, he did not feel like now early on, early on, it was different. We had, we had a discussion one day after our third child was born, and, I, and it was hard. He said, I feel like that you're tense a lot. And I said, I am. And, um, and he said, tell me about that. And so he was very open to you know hearing whatever I had to say, and I tried very hard to say it kindly, and he did the same thing for me. But I remember we lived on Weber Avenue at that time. JL was only a, a few months old. And I said, here's what I feel. I feel like that with our third child, everything has changed for me. Our, our company has increased by a third, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and I feel like your job remains the same and mine has greatly increased. And he just sat there for a minute. I remember very clearly, we're sitting at the kitchen table and he said, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Tell me exactly what evening this out would look like to you. And we had that great discussion and he became uh, much more directly involved in, in just, you know, kids baths at night and, you know, that kind of thing. He did that. So he did the household things. Um, all of that is very important. I couldn't have been who I was and us have because, okay, when you're raised by a super mom, my mother was a super mom. She can tomatoes she canned everything she she uh, made our clothes she did all that kind of stuff so she was super mother uh, she never had um, she never had piles of dirty laundry because she always kept up with it you know so she had an intimidating standard and so I in those early days I was I was fixating on a lot of that I was trying to be super mom and be you know a good pastor living out my calling, doing that kind of thing, serving the world as well. And my mom was full-time homemaker her whole life. And so our lives were very different. For me to compare my life and my impact with hers was ridiculous. But I, I felt that pressure that I, I didn't have the right. In fact, she even expressed this to me one day, that she did not feel like I had the right to serve the church unless I had served my home the way it should be and she was referring to laundry at that time mm -hmm. and I said to her um, mom my laundry is not my home ask Charlie and the kids if they feel neglected ask them that and my dad being the guy he was he was at the top of the stairs and he heard it and there was no ugly language or attitude between us but he heard it and he said something I've almost never heard in fact I can tell you two times I've heard that that's all and he said, Marie, that's enough. <laughs> and in the strangest way, I felt so validated. He was not unkind to her in any way, but he was saying, this is not your story to write. This is your, not your life to live, so step out of it. And she accepted it. She was not mad at dad. You know, she did that. But so, you know, 
I was fixated on that. Charlie stepped in and he did, he did so much. But I will tell you one example from church life. Yeah. When I became the senior pastor at Cornerstone and he left to become superintendent of our churches, um, I had, um, there, was, there was plenty of opposition that we had no idea there would be because everybody loved me as a support player. But there were many who had the no women in ministry kind of thing that they had, you know, carefully se separated in their mind what it was I was allowed to do. In fact, one guy, there were, if you can imagine this, Caleb, uh, within the first two months of me being pastor, 60 people had left the church. And even in a church as, as big as, you know, New Point or, you know, the chapel or whatever, yeah. if 60 people leave over one reason, you're going to notice it. Yeah. Well, in a church of 300 people, which it was you, at the time, you, you really, really notice, notice it. it. Yeah. 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 So they left, and the pressure was really, really high. And, um, and one of the men said to me, he sat in my office and cried, and he said, I don't even understand myself. He said, I was able to sit in counseling appointments with you and my wife and let the wisdom God gave you save our marriage, but I can't hear that same wisdom from the pulpit from you. He said, I don't understand myself. So anyways, it was, it was uh, struggling. And um, we had our first annual meeting after I became pastors in the late fall. We had our first annual meeting, and there was uh, a couple of men who... Um, expressed to me verbally, we were in this church before you got here and we'll be here when you're gone. This is, I hope not cocky, but I have to tell you, I'm still here and they've been <laughs> gone for a long time. <laughs> uh, but anyways, um, so that was that was a feeling there. And I, I didn't want anything to be antagonistic, but these there were a couple of men who who very much made it that way. Mm -hmm. So we had the annual meeting. Charlie was superintendent. He didn't have to be there, but he came. He came and attended. He sat on, you know, third or fourth row back, just came in as a regular congregational member. In this meeting, I could feel my chest and neck get hot because one of these men was sitting three or four rows from the back, and he was determined to strip me of any kind of authority in that meeting and you could feel it he just kept coming on he was asking things and he would stand up and ask his questions very loudly and he said um he he was asking a question i don't even remember what it was about but he called out to charlie sitting in the fourth row back and charlie was just sitting there kind of impassively just listening i'm sure he was praying but but he called out and he said pastor charlie and he asked the question, which he knew my answer to was going to be different than he wanted it to hear, whatever the question was. I don't even remember because it was such trivial, crazy things. Yeah. So he asked the question, and he called to Pastor Charlie. And, he, and Charlie did not even turn his head around and look at him. Charlie answered in a very bold, kind, but commanding voice. I'm sorry, that's Superintendent Charlie to you. Your pastor is leading the meeting. Ask her. <laughs> it was so great, Caleb. It was so great. I felt this, I just felt this relief wash over me. Interestingly, I found this out afterwards. The guy got up and left the meeting. He didn't even stay for the rest of it. So after the meeting, 
our daughter Rachel was helping run sound up in the booth at that time. And the man that was up in the booth said to her, he said, wow, I would not have done that. How did it feel to you that your dad refused to protect your mother in that situation? And it gave me such hope that we were raising our children well because Rachel was horrified. She said, are you kidding? She said, he, dad did protect her. He let the world know she was in charge and he was behind her. And, and that is what he did throughout all the time that he was superintendent. And you know, Caleb, it's been the most magnificent thing. Throughout our marriage, he was my boss, we were peers, and I was his boss throughout different seasons of our life. And we never had stress in our relationship because of it, ever. It was because when he was, when he was in charge, he was very willing to hear my opinions. He was very willing to hear that, but when the decision had to be made, he would make make it, and that's that's the same thing he gave me. Any place that my responsibilities required me to be in charge, he applauded it, and he believed in me, and it made the other people believe in me too. So, that's that's the kind of husband I had. Well, uh, it just sounds like such a picture of humility between oh, the two of you. Absolutely, I I hope I was always humble. I know that he always was. He's he honestly. I, I have been so blessed, I can't even comprehend it, really. But he and my dad and Jacob DeShazer, three, three men that are, are my heroes, are the three most humble men I've ever known. I know uh, the, that um, the Bible says that, that Moses was the most humble man who ever lived. Um, that's probably true. But from my standpoint, Moses wrote that about himself. Yeah. <laughs> and my dad, my husband, and Jacob DeShazer would never claim that about themselves, but you certainly saw it in their lives. I uh, Later, I want to get to Grandpa. Um, I've never heard you talk about Jacob DeShazer oh, before. And so, yeah, tell, tell, me, tell me about him. Okay, Jacob DeShazer uh, was a uh, Doolittle Raider. Um, and you know he was he was the one longest held in captivity, and uh, they were shot down. Um, most of those guys that didn't that were shot down uh, died. He he was longest held, and I remember in, in what war the World War Two. Okay, World War Two. Uh, they were they were shot down uh, when they when they went in. Uh, General Jimmy Doolittle was their commander, and they went into um, you know to do this raid, hopefully to, to end the war. And it was very significant in that, but, um, but they got shot down he got shot down and landed in China and he was captured. He was in, uh, you know, they had all kinds of ter- terrible situations. Most of the people died in prison. He actually got saved. His story is fascinating, Caleb. Uh, reading it, there are numerous books out about him. Reading it is is remarkable. He uh, came to know the Lord. He had a Christian mother who had prayed for him, and he remembered everything she had said. Um, somebody smuggled in some uh, pages of the New Testament, not the whole New Testament, but pages, and he read it. And, and then he told the Lord how much he wanted to be baptized. And the Lord... Uh, moved on his heart to stand underneath this little tiny, just the little air duck that yeah. was like outside with little bars on it. And he stood underneath that and it started to rain and the wind blew and blew water in on his head. 
and he was baptized there. It's just so powerful. But anyways, after the war, and he did live through it, and he was uh, released, uh, he felt God's call on his heart to be a missionary. And he and his wife went back to Japan, uh, where he had been captive by them as a missionary. And um, uh, he and Fuchida, who's the one who led the raid on Pearl Harbor, Mm -hmm. he also got saved. And um, so this Japanese and American two enemies, they had multiple crusades together throughout their lifetime. Okay, I met him because when I was a little girl in Caldwell, I remember the tremendous ex- excitement. It was like we were going to meet the president. Yeah. My dad, you know, served in World War II as well, and uh, Jacob DeShazer was a massive uh, hero to him. And this would have been probably, I'm going to say, around 1957, 58, 59, somewhere in there. I was a young girl then, and he was coming he was coming to our house and was going to speak at our church. And my dad could not have been more excited if he was, you know, meeting, like I said, the president. And uh, so he came and he, he became so influential in our lives. He was in and out of our house uh, many times as dad would have him come when he and his wife were home on furlough. And then uh, Charlie and I did the same thing. Um, and uh, he and his wife Florence are both home with the Lord now, but they had such an impact on our lives. They were with us staying in our home uh, the weekend that I found out that we were expecting our son Jacob. Yeah. And that's where the Jacob and Jacob's name comes from. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Tell me, um, like, what what so strongly resonated with you? I mean, you, you said that, uh, and it... And again, it means a lot to me to just he- even hear his name yeah. amongst grandpa's name yes, and yeah. amongst Uncle Charlie's yeah. name. I would just be curious, like, what did what did he do for you? Like, what did he do that made such an impact the on Im- you? The impact, he is the person in my life that embodies forgiveness. Mm-hmm. You know, he, um, he went to the people who abused him. He went to the people who betrayed, you know, who who uh, sneakily, their leadership, not the people themselves, but their leadership sneakily attacked and killed several thousand in one day of our people. And we had no idea it was coming. It was treacherous. It was all of that. And he started that period of his life with such hatred. And when these very people did the worst to him, Jesus enabled him to forgive them. And it was fascinating to me from a child. That is what resonated with me was his forgiveness. And he was so humble. And, you know, I talked to him about it on numerous occasions. Like, Jake, how, you know, how did you do that? How did you over overcome that? And he, he just looked at me with like, I don't know, such humility and astonishment that I would ask that. And he goes, well, well Jesus loves them. Jesus forgave me. You know, that's, that's what it's about. And he signed everything that he ever signed that I'm aware of. He signed it, love never fails. Love never fails. And I just, when I was a child, I thought God was calling me to be a missionary, and it wasn't that. It was just, you know, I had never seen a woman pastor, and so you, I had seen women missionaries that were able to teach or be nurses, so I thought I was going to be a missionary nurse. I can't stand the sight of blood, so that was never going to work out. <laughs> but, but anyhow, um, so he was, he, he would have been, he and his wife would have been great models for me in any case, just because they were missionaries. But 
as I got to know them, and mom and dad were great about that. They brought people into our home who would be, you know, role models and targets for us to, to look towards in our life. And um, that hit, forgiveness is definitely it. It was fascinating to me. And, you know, he had, as anybody does, any time you want to make a difference for Jesus, you have lots of people who will not like you. You have people who will reject you. You have people who will betray you. And that happened to him plenty of times. And he was just loving and forgiving and humble all the way through. And I'm like, I want to be like that. I want to be like that. And he said it was just Jesus. So that's that's why it did. I, I would imagine that that probably had an impact on you as and again, I don't I don't know the exact timeline on it. But you just even mentioned you have these people who you become yeah. uh, the the lead pastor. And they're okay with you in the support role. You become the lead pastor. I imagine he had to have had an impact on oh, you. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, he did. It, you know, he did. the The forgiveness and the the willingness to be misunderstood. I I got to tell you, Caleb, that I think is a family weakness. One of our one of our things as a family that we have to work through. For me, I did a a great study on myself. This was so helpful to yeah. me, Peter. Scazzaro, Um, his book, Emotionally Healthy Christianity, he suggests in there that you do a genogram and you look at the spiritual traits that pass down through your family and find out what comes, uh, what what do you see as the weaknesses and the strengths on both sides of your family um, that show up in you. And and I will say that um, uh, I saw the, the trait from the Mason side of the family that uh, showed up in me was um, a sense of inferiority mm-hmm. and a fear of being misunderstood. Yeah. And, and, you know, Daddy, he, he um, was such a great man, but I remember coming into his room uh, one day near the end of his life, probably two years before he went to heaven, and when I came in, he was crying. And I said, Daddy, what's wrong? And he said, oh, he said, Brendy, when you live by yourself, when you live in a room by yourself, he said, you spend a lot of time in your head, and your head can be a very dangerous place to be. And I said, what's bothering you this morning? And he said, well, it's not really bothering me. He said, it's just come to me this, many, this, this morning. How many people have walked away from me when all I was trying to do was love them. And he said, it was hurting me again this morning. He said, they just misunderstood. They just misunderstood. And I was like, oh dear Jesus, thank you that daddy was heroic enough, courageous enough, vulnerable enough to tell me that, because I need to know that. I do not want to sit alone at the end of my life having too many moments of that kind of pain I, I want to, dad, no question, had for, forgiven them a long time before that. Mm-hmm. But the pain of being misunderstood was still there. I don't know that I'm there yet. I can tell on days things that are fresher that I'm not there yet, but I'm, you know, I'm getting there. I'm making progress in that direction. But, um, but I, you know, if the Lord would if his intent to me would be to live to be 96, 
I don't want to worry about being misunderstood yeah. anymore. I want to be way, way yeah. past that. And I know that it's a spiritual weakness for me. Yeah. Well, even because Bo, like I just think about you saying that, and I just think about how that that shows up in my life. The DNA is pretty straight, right? Yeah. And it's just so funny because I feel like um, probably like a, and again, I feel like it's, you know, I think, you know, we're like an onion and stuff. You know, my dad says it all the time. Yeah. And it's like, I feel like a couple of years ago, it was like peeling back the onion of inferiority. And right now I feel like I'm peeling back the onion <laughs> yeah. of being misunderstood. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Right well, get used to that feeling because, yeah. you know, at 70, I can tell you, you got, you know, there are so many layers to who we are and so many layers of what has happened to us and how they've impacted us. But, um, yeah. You know, I I want to go back to um, you. You briefly touched on this, but like, kind of living in the spotlight, like living under that. What's what's some of the things that for you and Uncle Charlie? And I mean, you're still you're still kind of there today too. Like, tell me some of the things that has helped you whenever you you feel like you're in the spotlight and just navigating through that. Yeah. Well, I think that there's a there's a part of us as humans that craves the spotlight because we don't understand it. You know, we think that the spotlight, if I could just be like this person, if I could just be like that person, if I could just have their, their power, if I could just have, if I could just be the one to make the decision and we wouldn't necessarily think it's the spotlight, but the spotlight is control. The spotlight is influence. The spotlight is all that. But the thing, the thing that is is um, reality about the spotlight is that um, it it can realistically show your flaws, but it also the spotlight casts shadows and it will make things appear to be what they are not. And so the spotlight can be a very frightening place, and that's I think why so many people can can fall apart. But then also, if you don't, if you don't ask the Lord, if you don't relentlessly check yourself out and realize that, you know, like, you know, in our, in our day of social media, we put the spotlight on ourselves in the way that we want to, you know, we we're very selective about what we let people see. But, um, if we're, you know, in any way on top of our game, we do that. But, um, but the spotlight can, can be something that, that we crave in a way that is destructive to us, that we will do anything to keep ourselves in that, in that power position with the light on us, whatever, if we're not experiencing the ne negativity from it. And, um, so again, I would say one, one of my mantras for life is loosely holding anything like, you know, my identity can't be that I have charge of this or that, you know, it just can't be, um, navigating the spotlight is, um, one big thing is being willing to laugh at yourself. Yeah. You know, if you take yourself too seriously, spotlight's a very bad place to be because even even not people being mean to you, you just being a human being, you'll you'll do some you'll do some things that you wish were not in the spotlight. You know, yeah. um, uh, navigating that, I, I would say, uh, was 
Charlie and I were very fully able to tell each other the truth about what we saw, you know, um, as, as your dad would say, it's important to have someone in your life who loves you enough to tell you if your zipper's down before you go on the platform. And, and I think that navigating the spotlight, it is so essential that you have people around you, uh, who are willing, you know, to tell yourself, tell you the truth. Um, I remember years ago, Jeannie, your aunt, my sister, was Charlie's secretary, and I was his associate pastor. And someone who didn't like him and was very critical of him said, um, all you do is surround yourself with yes people. And he said, what do you mean by that? And he said, your wife's your associate, your your sister, um, your sister-in-law is your, your secretary, your office administrator. And Charlie just laughed and he said, what you just proved to me is that you don't know me at all and you certainly don't know these two women in my life. <laughs> he said, if I can get my ideas past them, I'm pretty sure that they're okay. Yeah. And I think that, that if you're in the spotlight, you, you better have people who love you enough to risk the relationship with you by telling you the truth. Mm-hmm. You know, I... Um... I think the the next thing I want to ask you about is another lesson, and then I kind of want to close the loop on on a couple of other things that okay. I'm interested in talking sure. about, and then I want to close by talking about Grandpa. Okay. Great. Um, great. So the the other lesson, which I think just goes goes, you know, one one of the things that I've just noticed as we're talking is this conversation has dealt with so much about knowing yourself, being secure in in yourself, and that has to do with one of the other lessons okay. and. You know, you say one of the other lessons that you learned was know yourself and focus your energy on doing what only you can do. And I think that then you include another part in there, which I think is just very fascinating to you. You said spend a few minutes every day thinking about your life. And I've, I've, I've heard the know yourself, the focus your energy on doing what only you can do. I feel like we've we've covered that a little bit. So feel free to elaborate on any other additional thoughts that you have. Wow. But then I want to talk about the spend a few minutes. Okay. After. Uh, yeah, I'll concentrate yeah. on that. But I will I will say go back to okay. We just talked about my desire not to be misunderstood. Yeah. That is one thing that I have to keep in the forefront of my mind yeah. if I'm going to know myself, because I can let that make me make a bad decision. And so I have to remind myself when I'm ready to make a decision, um, I have to make sure that my desire to to be understood and my unwillingness to be misunderstood is not is not uh, taking me there. And so, um, so today I would say I am truly willing to do anything, but time only allows so much. I want to be a humble person. I'm willing to be the custodian at the church if that's what they need me to do. However, there are several people who can do that very well and can do it better than I can do it. Um, But the counseling, the time that I spend with people, um, there's not very many who can do that. And so when, you know, when they have a a big uh, give and serve day, I certainly go to that. Because my my influence is important there, yeah. but like right now, you know it. They're they're working on the offices at the church, and they invited any of us to help yeah. that can. Well, I can't do that. Yeah. 
you know, there's some other people who can do that. I need to do what I can do. So that and who want to do that. and who want to do it and who Absolutely. love doing that exactly. Yeah. So, so so it's just a, a different thing. Yeah. And so I have to be sure that I don't let the thought that somebody thinks I think I'm too good to come paint a wall. Yeah divert me for what I'm doing. You understand what I'm saying? Oh, yeah, I have to know I myself in that. Yeah. Okay, so in in doing that, um, it means that I have to evaluate the opportunities that I have and the invitations that I have and see what is the best use of my one and only yeah. day that I have today yeah. to do that. And so um, in in spending the, the moments every day thinking about my life, uh, that's important to me. I do it in the morning and I do it in the evening. Um, I have, it's kind of funny, and in the morning and in the evening also, I always play a word game, yeah. um, and that's to try to keep my brain sharp, you know, to do that, but so I just have some little routines that are, are part of my day, but um, so um, I, I spend a few, a few minutes, generally, it's either at my breakfast room table or in my recliner, just where I'm just, whew, you know, I'm just, I'm calmed down. I'm not trying to do any other work at that moment. And, and I think about my life and in the morning, I evaluate my opportunities for the day. What do I think I want to do? And I ask the Lord to help me be open to interruptions. And I, I do that. And, um, so I, I would say that's a proactive thing, but in the evening, it's really important to me to evaluate the way I spent my life, something at my day of that day, one of the things that has been most helpful to me is that I don't know what year uh, Andy Stanley wrote the book. Uh, I think it was originally uh, titled What Lies Beneath, and then it became, it was, it was reprinted, uh, and it became Enemies of the Heart. Yep. But in there, he tells a few questions that he uh, and Sandra asked their children as they were growing up in the evening just to help them keep their their heart clear and I don't I don't do those questions but I it it um, and I don't do them all every day it's not a it's not a routine that I have written out and I do but it's my thought process so in the evening I will generally on most days I will kind of just run a a, a I look at my day. I'll reevaluate my day and I'll look. Is there anybody today that I need to forgive? Did I get my feelings hurt and I just quickly moved on to the next thing? Did anybody hurt my feelings today? Uh, do I need to forgive anybody? And then, is there anybody that I need to ask forgiveness from? Is there anybody, you know, that uh, did what I do honor God today? Um, what am I grateful for? Gratitude is a big, big deal to me. I, I believe I say it all the time. It's not original to me, but I believe it with my whole heart. Gratitude is the healthiest human emotion. And um, and so every day I think about what I'm grateful for, the people that I'm grateful for, thank God for them, often will send a text or a thank you just to do that. And those those thoughts about my life keep me encouraged, you know, and it keeps my spiritual life up to date, keeps my, my heart clean. So that's how I think about my life every day. And I also, I'm very goal-oriented. Every day I think about the things, you know, I'm thinking, man, I'm 70 years old. There's, I've got, I've got, Charlie used to tell me, he said, honey, you're going to have to live to be 125 to get done half of the things you think you're supposed to do. So I have to figure out what I need to do and, and, you know, try to be about that. Um, but 
that's that's kind of it. Yeah, yeah. You know, to, at the very beginning of our conversation, you mentioned about um, starting the day by restoring order. Can you talk to me more about that and kind of what that does yeah. for you? Oh man, Caleb, it's it um, honestly at this stage of my life, living alone, being a widow, uh, my children. Uh, All three of them, I'm very close to all three of them and their spouses, um, love them dearly, but they all have very busy lives. You know, even though we live close to each other, I can go all week without seeing any of my kids until Sunday. And um, if I didn't restore order to my own life, if I did not have a life that I was scheduling out and I I was planning things to do, I could be a bitter woman. I could be focusing on the past and the glory days and you know and and i will tell you after charlie died one of our things we had and this is funny we've had a landscape stone in our yard uh the weekend that charlie died there was a terrible storm big freeze first one we'd had like that in a long time and when the when the freeze melted the landscape stone was broken in three pieces and it said grow old along with me the best is yet to be and it felt very symbolic to me that Charlie had died and that stone was broken. And I made a decision that was either bad news or it was good news. Mm -hmm. The picture of what I thought it was going to be was broken, Mm -hmm. but the best is still yet to be. And I couldn't say that for a long time. I, my life planner is so important to me. That's, you know, so important to me. And, and I'm, (laughs) I'm like, um, I get bored easily, so I decorate it up with stickers through the week, you know, to make it look good and all that kind of stuff to encourage me. So I have that. And for the longest time, I couldn't put it. It was years, several years. Charlie will be gone uh, to heaven five years in January. And it was at least three of those years that I had a hard time ever putting a sticker in there that says life is so good. Because not because life wasn't so good, but because it felt like a betrayal of what I'd had with Charlie, and and I had to grab hold of the fact I still have that. Yeah. I still have that. We have heaven. I still have a good life. I have to do that, and that um, that proactively thinking about my life and planning it out. The my life planner. I couldn't live without it. And I and I you know many friends that I have they use their digital stuff for that. And I think that's wonderful. Yeah. I'm a little bit jealous of them that they can do that. But I am so old school. I'm a hard copy. It's yeah. why I like, I'd rather read a hard copy book than on Kindle, even yeah. though I do both. I'd rather do that. I want to mark it up. I like to put big old check marks beside my stuff and draw a line through it that says it's done. I, I like to have those goals in front of me. So bringing order to my life includes every single day the First thing in the morning, after saying good morning, Lord, even before my devotions, I look at my life planner to see what's in front of me for this day and what needs to be in front of me for this day. And so then I can give it to the Lord. So bringing order to that, that's that's a part of it. It's, you know, making sure that that I, I live in an atmosphere that is orderly and helps my thoughts stay orderly, making sure I have, you know, another thing, another thing that I do, this sounds, um, this may sound so trivial that it's not even important, but it's important to me. Every single morning I go through the house. One of the very first things I do and open up all the windows and let in all the light that I can. And when, you know, when the weather's good enough, I open up the doors too to just bring the light in because it sets the tone for my day. It just does. So just, you know, there's, there's, and probably a, 
pretty good list of little routines that I do and they just help me. They bring order to my day. They make me feel like God's in his heavens, all's right with the world. <laughs> you know, um, one, one of the major things that we have talked about in here is just becoming more comfortable with who God made you to be. I would just be curious to hear, we've, we've talked about it so much, but I, in case you have any other <laughs> thoughts, I just want to make sure that we don't miss any. I, I think it's accepting, um, you know, comparison is deadly. It always is. And at, and you never get past it. You know, we talk about peer pressure and, oh, teenagers and peer pressure. Get over yourself. You have it when you're 70 years old, too. Yeah. You know, you have it You have it at every stage of your life. And um, I, I think, you know, identity in Christ for a believer, that's the big deal. I, I'm not, you know what, my identity is so in Jesus, I don't have any clue. I tell people that when they come for counseling um, who are not believers. I tell them, I'm so happy to help you, but you need to know I'm going to be referring back to Jesus all the time because he is the transformer. He is the thing for me. I can give you coping mechanisms, yeah. but I can't give you anything that will change you unless we go there. Yeah. So, you know, and, and so what I would say for me, um, the thing for me is just, you know, realizing that I ha my creator dances over me with joy. He looks at me and he says, yeah, it's my girl. That's who I made her to be. And when I focus on that, I'm good. And I, ha but I have to trust him enough to believe he hasn't made a mistake. You know, my, um, I have myasthenia gravis. You're aware of that. I was diagnosed with it in 2015. It's a very rare autoimmune disease and it's, uh, it's progressively debilitating, uh, to your life. And, um, I have it ocularly, uh, ocular and I have it in my, my throat muscles. It's, uh, my involuntary muscles will betray me and I can't always see very well, can't always talk very well or swallow very well. And, um, in my, in my muscles, the, uh, I have muscle fatigue very badly. Well, um, I have two ways to look at that. I can either look at that as God's gift to me as Paul's thorn in his flesh to draw me closer to him, or I can look at it as a debilitating destructor of my life. And in 2015, when I was diagnosed with that, um, I was lead pastor at the church and I shared because they had thought I'd had a stroke and I didn't, you know, they found out they were able to get me medication and start helping me delay and deal with things. But when I, when I found out that I had this uh, disease, I announced it. So, you know, people would know, I said, this is, this is what I have. Don't worry about me. It's not terminal. It's not, you know, it's not that it's just in inconvenient, that kind of thing. And, and I got a letter in the mail, Caleb, um, it looked beautiful from the outside. It had it, the return address was from your heavenly father and it was in beautiful font. And I thought, oh, this is going to be so encouraging. I opened it up. It was the most painful attack I could have possibly gotten. Whoever this person was, I still have no idea who they are, but they told me in that letter that my myasthenia gravis was God's judgment and punishment on me for my disobedience to him, that I was not obeying him by being a woman in ministry, 
that I was leading hundreds of people to hell by my example of not obeying the word of God. It was so terrible. And um, it prophesied over me that my children would not walk with the Lord until nothing would be removed from me. All of this punishment would follow me until I owned my sin and quit this way of life. And I was just dumbstruck, absolutely dumbstruck. And I was falling apart weeping because it felt like, it it felt, it felt like darkness descended over me. And I showed it to Charlie and he said, give me that letter. Give me that letter. And he looked at it and then he said, you need to take this letter and you need to burn it right now. You need to burn it right now. And I said, I can't. And he goes, you burn it or it'll burn you. And so I burned it. I burned it. And this is what I found out. Myasthenia gravis has been an incredible gift of God for my ministry. Because people who don't know what it's like to be a pastor and certainly don't know what it's like to be a woman pastor, people who don't know the things that our family as a whole, all of us, have suffered um, behind the scenes. They haven't known it because God has given us grace. That's not a brag. That's just like, I mean, when I look back over at my life and God has helped me to do that a couple of times, man, we have had some massive tragedies in our life. We have had some incredible burdens to bear, but it doesn't appear it because, gee, oh, Caleb, I could preach on this. I'm just, I, I'm just overcome by it. Jesus said, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. And it is not that we don't have hard times. We do. But if Jesus has allowed us to have the burden, it's going to be easy and light. And so you've had your own tragedies. I've had my own. And people think that our lives are charmed. People think that they are. They think we have nothing. Because Jesus is so transforming our burdens that it just doesn't look the same. So that's what I found out with with my MG. I have found out that it and in the last almost five years now, even the loss of Charlie, the loss of Jeannie seven years ago, even those things have opened up new doors of ministry and widened my life and made it deeper, my dependence on God deeper, you know, it's just so much. And people who thought my life was charmed, they thought they could never have the faith and trust that I have because I didn't have to trust God the way they do. Okay, so now they know. Now they know. I I would never ask God. I just was at a ladies' retreat, and a lady came up to me afterwards, and she said, you said you have myasthenia gravis. She said, you need to reject that in the name of Jesus. That was claiming that sickness for yourself, and you need to get rid of it. If you will have the right kind of faith in God, that will leave your life. And um, I just said, you know, if you believe that for me, then fine. I said, you can, you can pray for it. You can pray for it. Yeah. I personally don't pray that way, and um, I don't. I would be, it would be thrilling in one way if I was miraculously healed of this and I didn't have to have three or four days of every week where it's a pretty hard job to get up and get going. Um, that would be wonderful. But to have that, 
would mean I would be telling about miraculous healing to lots of people who are never going to get it. And so, you know, when, when Paul said the Lord has opened up for us a great door of ministry, that's what my MG has been for me. You can't believe the widows and the widowers that I have access to their life that I never did before with Charlie because we had a great marriage. You know, we had a great marriage. Not all of them have had it. Um, but now I have this opportunity. And so, you know, when I, when I look at that, I'm, I'm just like, yeah. I don't, honestly, Caleb, I don't, ex except for people's salvations, I rarely, like, ask God for anything because the things I've asked him for, so many of them, I'm so grateful they didn't come to pass, and he knows what's best anyway. So my big focus in my life has been for quite a few years, just trust, 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 yeah. just trust, yeah. because if I, if I knew everything that he knows, I would make every choice that he makes. I just would, and the only reason I don't agree with God is because I don't know his information. And so, you know, trust is my big deal, and my the way to the way to deal with it, your identity in Christ, is recognizing that everything that comes to you has come with His permission, mm -hmm. not necessarily His desire. People sin against us doesn't, but He could stop it, and if He doesn't, He's going to do something incredible with it. So just trust it. Yeah. You know, I I want to talk about Grandpa here in a minute. Thank you. Um, but the other thing that I just thought about that I and we again it's one of those things that we've we've talked about it before in this conversation, but I'd love to just have you touch on it more. Um, is you mentioned not having an example whenever you first became yeah. a pastor, and I know that Uncle Charlie and Grandpa and um, even God and Jesus mm -hmm. helped yes. with that. I would just be curious to you because I just think mm -hmm. that's I I just find that 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 could just be a very similar story yeah. of whether it's you know for women not seeing an yeah. example or just, yeah. I just find that that's a common thing. of like just not yeah. feeling like you have an example. Yeah. Can you talk to me just a yeah. little bit of that? I, I have pulled mentors from everywhere, you know, like um, book authors. Like if there's somebody who's doing what I feel like God is calling me to do, you know, I've, I've done that. Um, I, I think that the, the people that model life for us best are not going to be like us in every single way. And so I just, I modeled my pastoring after uh, male pastors, yeah. you know, anybody who was doing it. I, you know, I, I went to seminars. I, I tried to get close to uh, pastors that were doing a good job. And I just did that. And I, you know, I had to be careful with ones in person because yeah. of the male female thing, but, but um, I did that. And then um I, what was really helpful to me was to find really good moms, just really good moms, and pick out some things from them that they were doing that I could do. And together, from lots of different places, there became a composite person, yeah. you know, that, um, you know, no name, no nothing like that, but kind of, kind of me. Yeah. And, you know, if, if, no snowflake is unique. There's yeah. certainly not going to be another unique Caleb that you can yeah. pattern after. There's not going to be that, and that's part of it. His um, God continues to create. Yeah. And so, you know, he's creating greatness yeah. in you, even if you don't have a particular model to follow. Yeah. Well, the 
what I want to close our conversation with is, and I know that we're going to talk about him a lot whenever we do our part two, is Grandpa. <laughs> um, but the the thing that, I, and again, you, you feel free to take this in any direction and talk as much as you want to about him. Okay. But I would just love, because I think it just ties so much into the conversation that we've had today. I remember, I can't remember how many years ago, but it was several years ago. And uh, you were talking at an all staff at New Point where I was working at the time. And you talked about this idea of how grandpa was your vision and he was your voice. Would you mind just talking about that a little bit? Yeah. Um, That's so powerful. It was so powerful me and it started very, it started very young. Um, And, and I will tell you this just kind of as a prelude to what what I'm going to say. Um, How many 96-year-old people do you know that before their death had multiple people in their nursing home room every single day who were not paid to be there? And they would travel to be there. One young man came a very great distance to bring him a paratrooper model just to tell him how much he admired and loved him. How many 96-year-old men do you know that? And then on their death, most of their friends that, you know, that they grew up with, most people their age are already gone. How many of them do you know have multiple, multiple hundreds at their calling hours and their funeral? Almost none. And they drove from everywhere, from the churches that he had pastored, from kids that were little when he was there who uh, kind of held him in honor and now they're 60-year-olds themselves, you know, that they're, they're all of that. Yeah. Um, how did that happen? It happened because the dad I had was the same guy everywhere. The same guy that he was to me as a father is who he was as a pastor. As, it's who he was as the ordinary man who walked most places he needed to go when he pastored in Zanesville, Caldwell, and um, Canton, New Albany. If if there was a way he could get there without taking too long with walking, yeah. he would do that. And the reason he did it was to connect with people. I, I can remember as a kid walking with him uh, on the streets of Caldwell to go to the grocery store, to the little supermarket that was you know probably probably three quarters of a mile from our house. And instead of driving the car, he would go, and he would often invite me to go with him. Um, I, I will tell you, I was not his special child. I just was the one who mostly said yes. Uh, Daddy was fascinating to me. Yeah. He was like, you know, he was the epitome of the, of the magnetic power of love. And so he was my vision. Mm-hmm. He was like, I wanted to be like that. I didn't necessarily think, I don't think I thought that I want to be like him, but I wanted to be like that. You know, I wanted to be like that. It was so, it was so attractive to me. So he was my vision. Um, he was, he was my voice in that, um, his, his love and his way that he did things, his non non-judgmental attitude, his belief in me, his voice overrode the negative ones. 
you know, they just did in so, in so many ways. I remember this is like, I can remember so many things, Caleb, that, that they seem random, but they really have shaped who I am, like who I am today. Decisions that I have made in recent years that have been unpopular, but I know they're what the love of Jesus wants me to do. Um, they go back to so many things like this. When I was in grade school, young grade school, was when John F. Kennedy was running for president. We'd never had anything like that in America before. He was younger than anyone else, and he was, oh no, a Catholic. And when I went to school in this little town, I came home one day, and I was, I, I was just shocked. And I was telling Daddy, Daddy, at school, they said that Mr. Kennedy is a really bad man and that he believes all the wrong things and he's going he's gonna to ruin our country. He's going to do that. And he said, did they say why they think that? And I said, yeah, they said he's a Catholic. Now, we were a small town. There was a Catholic church in it, but yeah. you know, basically all the other churches were, were other ways. And Dad said, those kids are not saying that because it's true. They're saying that because their parents have believed something untrue. They don't even know Mr. Kennedy. They don't know who he is. They know what the newspapers say. And let me tell you about Catholics. Catholics are people who believe in Jesus. They believe that he died for our sins the same way that we do. And to say that the Catholic Church is a bad church is to make Jesus sad. It makes me sad. Don't ever believe that. Don't ever believe that. That has impacted me to this day. I remember Dad telling me about how hard it was to have had um, I remember Daddy telling me how hard it was uh, to have the man that he was closest to. In fact, I have Dad's army picture uh, down the hallway hanging up and um, of his uh, battalion group, whatever you call him. And this black man is in that picture as well. There weren't very many uh, blacks in the military at that point in time before the war started. And um, they were uh, in Georgia at a base there. And I remember him telling me that um, how hard it was because he said, it's the most unbelievable thing. He said, he's just like me. He's fighting for a country just like me. And we would walk into restaurants who would not serve him because he was black. Dad would kind of shake his head in disbelief and say, he was neater than me. He was probably cleaner than me but they wouldn't serve him because of his race. And I said, what did you do? And he said, I left every restaurant that would not serve him. He said, it's terrible to treat people like that. Those were just casual conversations. Yeah. Um, I remember, you know, we, because we were the only, um, uh, one of the only churches in, the, in that community like us, uh, Everybody knew who Dad was. Dad was an unusual man. Everybody knew who he was. And so when, when people, when they used to call them tramps, when, you know, people would, that, you know, were just, didn't have much, when they would come to town, they would always find our house. They would always find us. And, you know, they would come to our house and say, Pastor Mason, I remember one guy called him Rebner Mason. Um, they would say, is there any way you could get me some food? Dad would almost never give them money. 
he would invite them to have dinner with us. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, I remember this. I remember one, uh, one time this guy came in and whew, he smelled really bad. And, you know, mom set the table and he sat down for dinner with us and, and um, uh, ate. And uh, you could smell the alcohol all over him. He clearly was, you know, a few sheets to the wind. Yeah. And um, uh, when he left, after he had been fed and dad prayed with him and everything, after he left, dad just in conversa- casual conversation, he said to us, he said, you know, that, that poor guy, he said, let's pray for him. He said, that poor guy, look at your little brother. And Jay was just a little guy at the time. He said, there was a day he was a little sweet and innocent like that. Life's been very hard on him, and he's made some very poor choices. Let's pray for him. And he said, you know, he didn't ever dream the day he drank that first drink that he would end up where he is today. Dad never talked against alcohol. He never did anything like that, never preached a sermon about it, but that stuck with me. You catch the pattern here? That's how he was my voice. Because these things, out of normal life, Dad never tried to preach to me, but that was yeah. that was the way he acted yeah. with my boys. You were just so close to him that I you just so picked up on everything. Yeah, I picked yeah. up on everything. Yeah. yeah, I picked up on it. He became my voice, and then um, the older I got, the more deliberately I went calling with him, visiting shut-ins and stuff all the yeah. time when I was a little girl. Uh, yeah, he was he was my voice. I took every minute to spend with Dad I could. I knew I was getting as they say, the wisdom of the ages yeah. from him. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, is there anything else just top of mind, just as we're wrapping up, whether, I mean, just about anything that we've yeah. talked about let, that you let, want to make sure? Let me finish with talking about dad just a little bit more, yeah. because this is something that your dad said that impacted me so great, greatly. I was so grateful for him for saying it, and it impacted me for, for the rest of my life. Yeah. When Dad died, we had our family. I don't know if you'll remember this or not, but we had our family visitation and viewing mm-hmm. um, the day before everybody else would. Yeah. And so we were there at the funeral home in the in the room, and we all had, you know, um, talked about Dad and shared loved and love and wept and cried and and everything. And then um, we asked Dwight if he would close us in prayer. And he went up by the casket, and then he said. He turned around and he said to everybody, he said, I want to tell you all something. Every one of us owe a great debt of gratitude to your mother, your sister, your aunt, your grandma, Brenda. Mm -hmm. Because she knows more about grandpa than anybody else. He said perhaps even more in some ways than mother knew because she sought things out and he said she spent countless hours with him and he said because of that and because of her willingness to share we know so much more about grandpa than we would have ever known he said daddy didn't love her more than he loved Jeannie or me or Jay or anybody else she had the relationship with him that she had because he was open to anyone to have it, and she's the one who pursued him. Mm-hmm. And he said, so I want to publicly thank you, Brenda. But then he said, I want to tell you all something else, too. If you feel like anybody in your life you don't know as well as you want to know, you probably should pursue him. He said, I'm feeling convicted about that myself. 
And then he said, the other thing I want to tell you is that's the way it is with Jesus. He doesn't love anybody more than he loves you. But you're going to have to pursue him. And if you pursue him, you will get what you need. So that has that has gratified me. I, you have no idea how much that has encouraged me. No. You know, you know that I shall share voraciously about dad on Facebook. No. Um, it helps me. It helps other people. You know, it, it is a help, helpful thing. But I will tell you the other thing that has helped me on mm-hmm. is it is pointless. It is pointless to try to pass on wisdom to people who don't want to hear it. Mm-hmm. Even Jesus said, if people are unresponsive, kick the dust off your feet and move on to those who are. He's not saying be unkind. No. He's saying invest your one and only life, your one and only day, into the people who want to have it. And so that has been my approach to life very much so in the last seven years since Daddy died. Mm-hmm. Seven, six, whatever it is. Seven. seven years, seven years since Daddy died. That has been my focus. And do you know what, Caleb? That's why we're sitting right here. Yeah. You have become that to me. It is one of the great honors of my life that you pursue me. It honors me so much. And I don't want to be the person, but I do want to be a vision and a voice in your life. And you give me that, you give me that opportunity. And it's so precious to me because you give to me back so much. And then I, I'm so grateful for our relationship. It's powerful and it's wonderful. And the fact, you know, the fact that you pursue me, brother, you can count on it. You got time. If I'm in a nursing home till I'm 96, the door will always be open for you, my brother. It will be. And, um, I, I just think it, it has helped me so much, and I'm so grateful that Dwight put that into words because I knew it, but I never processed it all the way through. And I, and I believe that investing in the people who see something in you is one of the most valuable uses of your life. And I'm, I'm glad I got that lesson, and I'm so grateful for you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you. You are most definitely a vision and a voice in my life. And I'm just so grateful. I am too. For our friendship. I am too. Well, I know that people are going to want to keep up with you. You have several books that people can check out too. Where's the best place for people to go to learn more about you? I I would say um, they they can contact me through email. Um, They can go on Amazon and get my books. Um, My email is Brenda Mason Young at gmail.com. And I, you know, I love to catch up with people that way. I'm, you know, regularly getting book orders in that way. Um, I would be happy to do that. And, you know, the church that I still serve at is Cornerstone Church in Akron, Ohio. And um, you can find me there too. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, we're going to be back for our part two Great. conversation. Great. This but was such fun. Yes. And I just want to say thank you so much thank just you. for, for, you know, these, these are, these are your life lessons and you have them because you've done the work. And I just want to say thank you for that. And thank, thank you for sharing it with us. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a highlight of my life so far to have this conversation with you. Yeah.
So that is the end of part one of my conversation with Brenda Young. And part two is going to be dropping tomorrow. So you won't have to wait very long to listen to it. I absolutely uh, love my Aunt Brenda and just very much looking forward to bringing you the next piece of this conversation as well. And I'm not doing takeaways because as as you could hear throughout it, uh, I'm very widely sharing some of my takeaways just from uh, just during the conversation as well. So with that said, you know, please subscribe to the podcast. Please subscribe to um, Substack, all of those good things. And I want to say thank you to Sam Massey for creating the music for this podcast. Thank you to my Aunt Brenda for being on the podcast. And just looking forward to bringing the rest of the conversation to you as well. And thank you for listening all the way to the end of the episode. My name is Caleb Mason. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing.